Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. I'm your host, Stephen Overley. The conventional wisdom is that the U.S. and China are battling it out for AI dominance, and that the U.S. has an upper hand, at least for now, when it comes to developing the technology. But two researchers at the Center for a New American Security are warning there's a key area where China is actually ahead. Bill Drexel and Hannah Kelly have just penned a piece on this for Politico. Here's a bit more about them. I'll start. My name's Bill Drexel. I'm an associate fellow at CNAS. I work on our tech team and on our um, AI safety and stability project, especially focused on competition with China and AI use in high-impact domains. Awesome. My, my name is Hannah Kelly. I'm a research associate also at CNAS on the tech team. My focus is more squarely on biotech these days, um, but really interested in sort of the nexus of national security and human rights, which seems to be increasingly relevant. On the show today, Bill and Hannah explain how China is already outfitting cities and countries around the world with AI technology and why that gives Beijing an advantage that will be hard for the U.S. to beat. Listen, Bill, I'll come to you first. You know, China is taking sort of this build it first approach to AI. What what does that actually mean? So it means that whereas when we think about AI international governance, we might think of diplomacy, reaching agreements, setting norms. Um, They see it primarily, uh, to put it charitably, through a development lens. They see it as, as, as a way to boost their own country's development and other countries' development. Less charitably, I think they see it as really a core linchpin of their model of techno-authoritarian control. And spreading that around the world, I think, will help them to establish norms that are favorable to how they want to use the technology in their own country, but also that kind of create an atmosphere globally that's more conducive to China's brand of authoritarian rule. A build it first and export it first kind of approach to AI. Right, right. Is there an example of this in particular or a couple of examples that you might share to that illustrates kind of the approach China is taking here? Sure. So I think one example is uh, th- they have this Luban workshop initiative, which is kind of this global vocational training program um, that's educated thousands of individuals around the world, especially in Belt and Road countries, that is, especially in developing economies and global south countries. That initiative has already trained numerous individuals um, in AI. People also point to the rise of AI-empowered smart cities, safe cities, city brains. There are kind of various words that Chinese companies use to describe this, but they're basically outfitting lots and lots of cities around the world, and especially in developing economies, with AI technology that helps them, uh, ostensibly at least, with safety, security, logistics, etc. And maybe a final area would be they more broadly dominate exports in AI-powered facial recognition technology. So there was a recent Brookings study released at the beginning of this year that found China leads the world in exports, both in AI generally um, and facial recognition particularly. So there's some overlap there with the city brains and Luban workshops, I'm sure, but it's it's kind of this whole package of, of various expressions of Chinese AI going out in the world. 
And Hannah, in the research that you all have done, have you gotten a sense of how pervasive this technology is? You know, these particularly this Chinese, you know, uh, made AI technology. Obviously, we heard just some recent examples, but how how far is their reach at this point? I guess is the question. I think when you talk about their reach, um, in part, you can talk about where they're already sort of deploying some of these systems and tools, which which Bill expertly gave an overview of. I think another important component to their reach is just the efforts that they've put in across the board in the last five, 10 years to build out international partnerships, specifically in, um, you know, the developing world. It's not a great category title, but it's what we've got with BRI, with building out Huawei infrastructure in different countries. In terms of reach, you know, the AI tools will come online, but they've already have a lot of these relationships where states are relying on their technologies, relying on their systems. They're indebted to China for these technologies and systems. And so they're more likely to sort of acquiesce to this next version or brand um, that might uh, resolve some of the issues that were already created. So I think um, it's sort of a long burn question of reach, but they've been uh, boxing out on partnership landscapes for quite some time in some really critical areas with countries that are relying on AI solutions for very um, deep societal need. So things like climate, things like food security, things like international conflict and and, uh, mistrust. There's a lot of different issues in the areas that they are pouring their partnership attention into. Um, And these are sort of simple solutions, Uh, whether they're good solutions or not is another question. You mentioned BRI, which is China's Belt and Road Initiative, which I immediately thought of that when, you know, reading your your piece and sort of thinking about the approach China's taking here, because really, Belt and Road, which was essentially China funding and helping to build a lot of infrastructure, you know, in developing countries that then in many ways were economically dependent on, beholden to China frankly, very, very effective. And I think we're still seeing Western nations like the US or like the EU figure out how to counteract that influence. Um, are, are the US or EU taking a different approach when it comes to AI in terms of maybe getting out ahead of, of China in any way with its influence here? I can take this first and then pop it over to Bill. I think The EU and the U.S.'s approach in trying to get ahead of the game with China is trying to get those rules of the road uh, down, trying to build consensus around some principles for development and deployment. Um, And uh, the concern is that 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 might not actually be getting ahead of the curve with China because China is actively building out this infrastructure with their principles baked in. So it's great to come up with um, sort of uh, best practices on paper. But if those uh, not so best practices are already being deployed, it's hard to pull that back. I think there's some differences in flavor between the EU, the US and the UK. Um, So the EU is angling to kind of capitalize on its Brussels effect, regulate first, and achieve influence that way by the size of their market and just by being kind of a, a first mover. Um, and their approach is pretty comprehensive. Uh, the U.S. is kind of being a little bit more conservative. We've seen the executive order, which came out pretty recently um, and was it was very far-reaching, kind of as our first major attempt to start to develop uh, a trajectory for AI regulation that presumably we'll try to international internationalize. Um, and that too is is reasonably far reaching. Uh, the UK seems especially interested on uh, kind of big safety risks. Um, and the US is also 
I think working closely with the UK on that, and, and that's a particular emphasis of our approach as well. But as Hannah said, I think we have a major issue, which is that kind of like Huawei and 5G, we can try to hash out whatever agreements we want to. It's another question whether or not those will actually be implemented, especially when other countries have tools already available to them that may not accord with those agreements. Um, and we've already seen China pretty brazenly charge ahead. We've basically seen China flout a lot of international agreements around this technology that they've already agreed to. And so I, th I think that the strategy is kind of inherently flawed. Even if we reach some kind of international agreements, China may or may not abide by them. And whatever China does is likely to be what other countries that they're already building robust relationships with are likely to do as well. Well, that's you know, what I'm thinking hearing you all talk here, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but it, it seems like on the one hand, you have countries who are presenting, you know, discussions and principles and regulatory frameworks. And on the other hand, you have China saying, here's a smart city system, you know, here's a facial recognition system, here's something like tangible, useful, and you can have it, you know, I don't, I don't know what they're charging, but historically, China has you know, sold things cheaply or based on debt, right? Or as just sort of a way to get in the door. I guess to me, that raises a question of like, is the US, EU, Western world approach, so to speak, actually a counterbalance to what China is offering? Bill, what do you think of that? I think that our governments seem to think it is, but I think in effect, it is not. It could be routed by China and maybe already is being routed by China as a, as a strategy. Hannah, did you want to add anything there? Yeah, I think it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately um, is, you know, the age old question of tech determinism that always pops up of is there inherently good or bad tech? Um, and I think we've all sort of come to the agreement that there's no good or bad tech. There's good or bad principles that can animate tech, um, but that's dependent right. on the actor that's animating. Um, I think uh, the naivete that I see uh, in some cases coming out of some of these efforts to build um, norms and standards first is that, you know, we're building norms and standards uh, operating under the assumption that the tech we're building norms and standards about is still uh, lacking that animation. And I think what we're failing to recognize is that in many instances, in many countries, in many regions, that technology is in some cases fully baked and the principles that are baked in are not democracy affirming. And so building norms and standards around technologies that have those principles baked in is, is sort of fighting a losing battle as opposed to building out the technology, still asking these tough questions about what norms and standards should should be in place, but asking those questions as we bake them in so that instead of having norms and standards to offer as opposed to real technology, you have real technology to offer in the absence of other real technology, but with those norms and standards that we would prefer. Um, so I think right now we're, we're offering the wrong, they're asking for technology and we're offering principles. And there's no reason why we shouldn't focus on our principles, but they need to be principles baked into a tangible offering of technology to really be a counterbalance. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. 
The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. You both have mentioned kind of 5G as a past example and concerns with particularly the Chinese telecom company Huawei. And I'm reminded of you know the Trump administration and, and then the Biden administration sort of continuing with this, raising concern about Huawei technology to other countries and, and putting pressure on other countries to really rip out systems that they have in place that use Huawei technology and replace that with technology made in, in the US or Europe, what have you. Are we already starting to see a repeat of that same kind of phenomenon where, you know, a few years from now, we might see the U.S. government urging allies to to get rid of this AI technology that was made in China? That seems to be what's happening from my vantage point. Um, I think in a few years, <laughs> we're going to wish that we had moved earlier to push products as viable alternatives, because otherwise we are just going to have to uproot what's already there or contest already well-developed ecosystems, you know, and is related to Huawei. A lot of these safe cities, smart cities are built by Huawei and hosted over its 5G communication technology. In that vein, then, I'd be interested to hear from each of you. Is there one thing that you think the Biden administration should be doing now to counteract this issue or, or try to get ahead of this issue? My perspective on that is, and I, ha- I do have to commend the Biden administration on just the the sheer push across the board for more international discussion and multilateral conversations, really shoring up a lot of bilateral relationships in recent months. I'm thinking of, you know, the U.S.-Korea-Japan trilateral relationship, U.S.-India relations, and that's good. I think what's missing from those conversations and what's missing from conversations we're not having with some other countries in the developing world is that we're not asking what are the problems that you need solutions to when it comes to AI? What are you looking for AI to do for you? Hmm. And how can we sort of reorient uh, how we're looking at the at the problem, at the questions, and try to meet some of those needs? I think we're offering what we think those countries need. And China is is just doing the harder work of asking. Yeah, I'll just add, I I think we need to think a whole lot bigger than we are right now. Um, In the executive order, pretty much the the only thing that we got in terms of what we're going to do for developing economies in the global south is that USAID is going to write a AI for development playbook. Um, Compare that to Xi Jinping personally announcing this global AI governance initiative at the 10-year anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. For China, it's it's a really strategic push in one of their flagship diplomatic programs. And there's a lot more we could be doing. We could be using AI in agriculture, in healthcare, in education, all of which have immediate applications in the global south and developing economies. We have the world-leading tech. We are a- ahead of China on AI, it's just a matter of do we have the will and the vision to be forward leaning on this. A metaphor we use in the in the piece is Eisenhower's 1953 Adams for Peace speech, where he really painted this vision of collecting the world's fissile material for the UN to empower developing economies around the world. That ended up not really being feasible, but at least in principle, he was directly tying nuclear development with the good of all of humanity, not just the nuclear haves. Um, And I'd like to see 
that sort of ambition coming from the United States, because if we don't, China is trying to seize uh, on this moment to play that role. And China is also seizing on this narrative that they uh, they're the ones offering solutions and the U.S. is the one offering rules and regulations um, and trying to sort of choke out the AI potential in these other states. That's like a very common narrative that they're pushing. And so in terms of what the Biden administration can do, I think they need to look that narrative in the face and start picking it apart. Um, and part of that means engaging with these countries, uh, asking them what they need, providing those things in you know creative ways um, that are competitive with Chinese provision. But we're also sort of combating this, this assumption that this is just sort of another version of American colonialism, that we're keeping AI from those who need it most. And I think that's just a narrative that we need to, we need to really critically look at. A natural follow-up question to that, if we're thinking big and, you know, combating this narrative and, you know, trying to offer solutions to these other countries, at the end of the day, those things seem to me to all have dollar signs attached to them, you know, that these are solutions that will cost money. And it's, you know, we've seen this in the past where China is very willing to spend and spend and spend um, just as a means of growing its global footprint, essentially. Uh, and certainly in the US, there doesn't seem to always be that same political will, especially right now, to do trade and aid, right, basically to to countries. But it, it sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong, that you all see that as part of the solution here. Yeah, I think we we need to kind of uh, cultivate that will, certainly. I also think it's, it is the case that AI scales very well. Um, so I think that we could also be clever with some of our deployments um, in such a way that, yes, they will require money. Yes, there will be costs, but we may be able to uh, get a fair amount of bang for our buck with some of these applications. I also think we can build on some of the infrastructure we already have in some virtuous cycles. So we already control upwards of 70% of the world's cloud computing infrastructure, American companies, that is. You could imagine a kind of private-public partnership for developing economies to make use of, of American compute power worldwide to build some of these more compute-intensive AI tools uh, that might otherwise be difficult for some countries to access uh, but ultimately, that benefits American companies. That's using American compute infrastructure and know-how. And Hannah, maybe I'll come to you with just this last question. You know, if we were to game out where things will be five years from now, assuming that the current trajectory kind of holds, what does that world look like? I think we're going to end up in an eerily similar but farther-reaching repeat of calling on everyone to rip and replace like we did with Huawei. Um, I think in terms of cost, um, yes, these solutions cost something. Um, but I think they cost a whole lot less than having to basically re reshape and rewrite the ecosystem in five to 10 years when we realize just how much of not only a national security and impact has, um, but the economic impact that it has on the United States for not being that leader in AI innovation and deployment other states aren't going to be relying on us for our own innovation ecosystem, for our own private sector. Um, if that, you know, ability atrophies, we're going to be reliant on other states, states that are reliant on China, China themselves. 
I'm, I'm not a doom and gloom person, but I think we're on the wrong track. Um, and I think we should uh, be wary of the signposts that we're seeing that we passed a few years ago when we uh, kind of let Huawei run out of control. Um, we're passing the same exit signs and we should take them. Excellent. Well, listen, a really interesting piece that you all have done for Politico and appreciate you being here on Politico Tech. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. Thank you for listening.